0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cuddeback writes and lectures on various topics including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cuddeback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. Dr. Cuddeback, an avid gardener and hunter, lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley. He is a frequent speaker for the ICC, and a much-loved speaker for the ICC, as well as one of our Magdala Apostolate professors. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. John (laughs) Cuddeback.
2: You, Danny, appreciate it. Okay. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, Great to be back. It's uh, been a few months. Uh, Good to see so many familiar faces. So we we will we will jump right in here. Pater meus agricola est. Let me say that one more time for those of you who are going back deep into, in, into, into your history to, to work on this. Pater meus, agricola est. My father is a farmer. You might be wondering where that's from. Well, I perhaps don't have to tell you that Jesus said that you you don't particularly recognize it because it's not translated as farmer. But this is actually right at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 15 of the Gospel of St. John in the very beautiful Last Supper discourse. Can you imagine these words coming from the mouth of our Lord? My father is a farmer. Isn't that just... Gorgeous. It's it, the way it's translated, is a, a vine dresser because it's where he proceeds to say, "I am the vine and you are the branches." But my father, he's the farmer in the family, as it were. So, our Lord has told us, isn't it evidence? Looking at what he has made, that God is indeed a farmer. There's so much we can learn from farmers. Farmers are ultimately, aren't they, most of all, intent upon the harvest? Not only, but most of all, intent upon the harvest. So we might begin by just recognizing God too, by the words of his son, is a farmer who clearly is intent on a harvest And what that harvest is, is is, is very clear. The harvest is your and my happiness, our perfection, our sanctity. There is really nothing else for him to harvest, is there? What, What else would he be tending? So God himself is intent upon a very specific harvest, and there are specific ways that it needs to come about. But just to stick with the harvest itself, our happiness, our sanctity. Another way that we might put it is a way that Blessed Columba Marmion did. I love his book. He was beatified, I believe, by Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, Columba Marmion. He was a famous Benedictine abbot. He has a great book called uh, Christ in His Mysteries. And in that book, he has, in the section on the risen life of Christ, refers to how Christ's risen life is the pattern of our true life. And he captures it with two Latin words. He takes from St. Paul, Romans 6.10, vivit Deo. Deo is a dative case there. He lives for God or to God, vivit Deo. And that's from Romans 6.10, which is, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And the Vulgate says, vivit Deo. He lives to God. He lives for God. So, blessed Colombo Marmion goes on and says, this can be seen as encapsulating our life, our true life, is nothing other than to live to or for God. So this is the harvest. This is what God, the farmer, is cultivating in so many countless ways that we, like his son, in his risen life, will live for or to God. For that, of course, is our happiness. This can also be captured by saying, This is what liturgy is. Liturgy is to live to God. It is to live for God. And so our focus today will be on liturgy. And so how we might prepare ourselves to be, we might even put it this way, to be a living liturgy ourselves. Our life itself can be liturgy a living to or for God. The focus of the lecture will be how, we might better do that, but note, there's a very very specific angle that we're gonna take. That's a much more profound topic in itself than I would dare take up as a big picture. How might we more go about becoming a living liturgy? How might we learn fully to participate in the liturgy, to become a living liturgy. My focus is going to be very simple. How can a greater awareness of and participation in the cycles of nature help us to do that? Right? So that's our focus. How can a greater participation in, awareness of the cycles of nature help us move towards our goal, the harvest of God, as it were, that we might live liturgy well. So I have, I have three parts of the lecture and then some practical suggestions. At first I had called it four parts and I said to myself, no, that's always bad. You never say that a lecture has four parts. You know how if you're listening to a lecture and someone says there's going to be four parts, your heart kind of sinks. You go, oh. four's just too many, all right? There's three parts of this lecture, trust me. And then a few quick practical suggestions at the end so you can only call it three parts with a few really quick practical suggestions at the end and here's where the parts are and they will be rather swift one liturgy the summit of our life or the vocation to be a living liturgy two two books the importance of the natural world part three some specific things we learn from the natural world and then again just a few uh, quick practical suggestions and hopefully we can talk about a little bit more in the question answers again the three parts first liturgy the summit of our life or the vocation to be a living liturgy then two books the importance of the natural world three some specific things we learn from the natural world. In this first section, I am particularly going to use some quotations from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which are on your handout. So, a few basic principles of the liturgy. I chose a few quotations here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I found very inspiring and informative and helpful. And so, just a few basic principles here, using the first several... Quotations which I have numbered on your handout. And the first is just kind of a basic quotation about what is the liturgy. Liturgy as God's work. Quotation number one. The word liturgy, it's a Greek word, originally meant a public work or a service in the name of, on behalf of the people. In Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people of God in the work of God. Through the liturgy, Christ, our redeemer and high priest, continues the work of our redemption in, with, and through his church. So, fundamental, fundamental principle here about what the liturgy is. Fundamentally, the principle is God's work. Originally, the term had meant a work of the people, For Christians, liturgy is fundamentally the work of God, but we can use that same word that the pagans used because the work of God is something that he is going to invite us into to do with him. We're going to be able to participate in his work. So it still can have the same original meaning that it had. Liturgy is a work of the people, But for us, it has this amazing aspect of it being both something that we do and more primordially something that God does. Our second principle here about the liturgy is that it is the center of the life of the church. It really is just a fundamental notion for us Christians. And so we turn to our second quotation. The liturgy then is rightly seen as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. It involves the presentation of man's sanctification under the guise of signs perceptible by the senses, and its accomplishment in ways appropriate to each of these signs. In its full public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is by the head and his members. From this, pardon me, it follows that every liturgical celebration Because it is an action of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. It's a very strong statement. I think it's likewise fair to say no other action action that would happen in this created world has the dignity of the actions being referred to as liturgy. Here is literally the beating heart of Christianity, this reality being called liturgy. Our third quotation goes on to give us a third beautiful principle in this kind of whirlwind tour introduction or and reminder about liturgy is that it is a foretaste of our heavenly life. I particularly love this. Quotation number three. In the earthly liturgy, we share in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, towards which we journey as pilgrims, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle. Isn't this a remarkable notion? I mean, doesn't it just give context to our entire life? Note how much was, was captured in those first couple clauses. In the earthly liturgy, we share in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims. The the whole Christian life is just set out before us there. The liturgy of heaven is heaven. It's, it's It's not as though the liturgy is one thing that people get together in heaven and do at certain points. The liturgy of the holy city of Jerusalem is the eternal life shared by the entire community. Heaven is liturgy. It is the perfect worship of God unendingly. That's the ultimate harvest. And what are we? We are but pilgrims towards that. To see the world as a Christian sees the world is to see it that way. I am but a viator as they say in Latin, one who is on the way. And that's where I'm on the way to. And the church, in her great wisdom, God in His loving providence, has given us liturgy in its various rich aspects to begin to participate in now. Always drawing us so towards the heart of our life now. It will be the totality of our life. One day. finally, the fourth quotation I've given here gives a sense of the, of, of the, of the broader sense of, of liturgy, where we primarily have the liturgy of the Eucharist, but we also have the liturgy of the Hours. And I, and I love this principle, quotation four. The mystery of Christ, which we celebrate in the Eucharist, permeates and transfigures the time of each day through the celebration of the liturgy of the Hours the divine office. As gentlemen, we're not going to talk about this at, at, at any length, but I just want to kind of touch and go here on, on this beautiful aspect and something that's particularly has more and more been being brought out for us by the church and encouraged. We as, as even laymen, of course, the liturgy of ours is the official priest that all consecrated commit themselves to, but we can more and more be able to participate in ourselves, and just to understand this, this notion of the Liturgy of the Hours. Isn't this a beautiful notion that the Eucharist is the height of liturgy, but the mystery of Christ, which we celebrate in the Eucharist, then permeates and transfigures the time of each day through the celebration of the Liturgy of the Hours, the divine office. Just a quick, quick thought here on the religious life. I'm going to circle back towards the end. Most of us are not called to the religious life, Nonetheless, religious are always a key reminder to us of who we are. To think for a moment about their day and how they are able to participate in an even fuller and richer way that reminds us of our common destiny of permanent liturgy in the next life. Picture the day of a religious, where the liturgy of the Eucharist permeates all the rest of the day in a liturgical way through the beautiful Liturgy of the Hours. That's something that, again, we can, depending on our state in life, depending on various necessities, more and more try to cultivate ourselves. That's the end of part one on the Liturgy the Summit of Our Life. Part two, the two books, the importance of the natural world. Here again, I'm going to use several quotations I have here. And first of all, I'm going to start with quotation number five from the Book of Wisdom. But all men are vain in whom there is not the knowledge of God, and who by these good things that are seen could not understand him that is, neither by attending to the works have acknowledged who was the workman. This is a beautiful point that St. Paul brings out, too. It refers to our ability to be able to come to know our God through the natural world. A very strong language. All men are vain in whom there's not the knowledge of God, and that's even apart from divine revelation. If we have not been able to see, our focus is not going to be on the natural world as a way for people who don't have faith to be able to come to see God, though that's a very interesting thing to pursue. My focus is going to be on how even us of faith, likewise, should be using it. But we should just at least be aware of this aspect of God intends that all of His creatures be able to come to know Him. First of all, His existence, but not just His existence, many things about Him. Not, of course, as much as we can come to know through faith and divine revelation, but many things about Him through the natural world. And now we come to this beautiful notion of the two books, for which I'm going to use some quotations from fathers of the church here in the next several quotations so just let this flow over you and I think you're really going to appreciate this notion of the two books I'm a quotation number 6 It is the divine page that you must listen to it is the book of the universe that you must observe the pages of scripture can only be read by those who know how to read and write while well, everyone even the illiterate can read the Book of the Universe, St. Augustine. Our next is from St. Augustine too. Some people, in order to discover God, read a book. But there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above and below. Note, read. God, whom you want to discover, did not make the letters with ink, he put in front of your eyes the very things that he made. Can you ask for a louder voice than that? As a gentleman, what I'd like to emphasize here is, this is for us too. My, my focus is not on <clears throat> a reasonable question, even maybe a frustration at time. Why, how can so many people seem to even enjoy and love nature and not, and not see its author? Great question. That might not be ours to answer. Right now, that's not the issue for you and me. The issue that St. Augustine is bringing before our eyes is, are you and I reading the book that God wants us to read? I, I, I love St. Saint, Saint Augustine was such a great rhetorician, but look at that great line. Look above, look below, note, read. Isn't it worth our stopping to ask, what would make us be better readers of this book that has a divine author? Ladies and gentlemen, we should not be afraid. I want to say this. I, I feel personally very strongly that we should not be afraid of speaking of nature as a way that God speaks to us. Sometimes I think as Christians, we can, we can shy away from, well, you know, we're afraid of those people who, who turn nature itself into a God or, or, or who go the direction of, well, I don't need to go to church because I just go to nature to find God. There are always mistakes that people can make that the mistakes that people can make should not itself make us turn away from something that obviously as saint augustine says is being given to us a book that god has written for us that in his loving generous providence he has put right there before us every day if we will but look above and below and note and read i often say to my to my students ladies and gentlemen you all can read, right? Well, there's reading, and then there's reading. My, my, my 11-year-old can read just about every word that would need to be read in the normal, simple sense of the term read. But she certainly can't pick up the Republic and read Plato and, and, and get it. Do we know how to read? Do we know how to read the book? It takes discipline, it takes formation, it takes good habits. I go on to quotation number eight. In the sacred scriptures, the word is veiled as logos. In the created world, he is veiled as maker and creator. Thus I state that both... This is, well, this is a very strong statement. Maximus the Confessor, he's the father of the church, a major one. Thus I state, both are needed by he who wants to turn to God judiciously. He needs the spiritual reading of Scripture and the spiritual contemplation of natural creatures. And so the natural law and the written law have the same dignity and teach the same things in a way that one of them has nothing more, nothing less than the other. I'm just reading you what St. Maximus said. You just just take, take, take that for what it is. Basically saying there's two books. God wrote two books for you, and you need to read them both. And you need to understand each through understanding the other one. If you don't understand the other one, you won't understand the other one, going both ways. So is thinking St. Maximus. St. Basil, another father of the church. But in our faith concerning God, the thought that God exists goes before. In this we gather from his works. We recognize by observation his wisdom and power and goodness and all his invisible attributes from the creation of the world. One more, Father of the Church, Tertullian, top of the back side. We state that first we know God through nature, and after we recognize him in the doctrines. Knowledge through nature comes from his works. Knowledge through doctrines, from preaching. So again, this this, this beautiful notion that's repeated again and again, God has written two books. Have we tended to forget one? Have we shied away from it? Have we not realized? That, and this is another thing I'd really like to try to emphasize. Reading Scripture is hard. It takes much practice. It takes much discipline. Reading the book of nature takes practice and discipline too. Perhaps not as much. And as, as the Father's indicated, it's something that should have even a broader appeal. That doesn't mean that it's easy. So what are we doing to cultivate our ability to read? The final quotation that I'd like to give you here, and th- th- this one I, I really love. This is from St. Thomas Aquinas. And let me read it to you and I'll give you the context. You're going to love this. And so, in the things that it makes, the human intellect which derives the light of intelligence from the divine intellect, must be informed by the examination of the things that come about through nature, so that it, the human intellect, may operate in the same way. Here's the quick context for this remarkable quotation. St. Thomas says this, The divine intellect has made the human intellect, The human intellect is, as it were, a student of the divine intellect, a disciple of the divine intellect, an apprentice of the divine intellect. And so he sets it up like this. If there is a great master who wants to teach a student how to do something, what does he have that student do? He has that student examine his master work so that the student can learn how to do the same thing that the master did. Picture the silversmith. What's one of the main ways that the apprentice silversmith is going to come to be able to be a master? He has to very carefully watch the work. Probably, first of all, the works, the artifacts that the master has brought out and look, brought about. And look and say, how? Ask himself, how can I do that? What do I need to learn from this? This is the analogy that St. Thomas has given. He's saying, we are apprentices of the divine master the divine this is how the divine master works he has made a masterwork for you and he's saying if you want this is the point if you want to think like i do look at what i have done st. thomas says we are apprentices here in how to think if we want to think like he does he has put how he thinks into the great things that he has made. Thus the second part of the lecture, ladies and gentlemen, the two books. You see how St. Thomas has, has given us that really neat angle of this particular book is, as it were, the book of the masterpiece of the master workman of whom we are the apprentice. My third part, some specific things we learn from the natural world. Some specific things we learn from the natural world When I start teaching a particular, a difficult class, I teach to philosophy majors called Recent Philosophy, where we look at some very, very difficult thinkers of the last 150 years, where it's not all bad, but there are serious, serious problems. And one of the things that I like to say to kind of give a flavor for the course and to kind of have be a recurring theme, I say to the students right at the beginning of the course, Because I think it is something that particularly characterizes what recent philosophers have lost, I ask my students, what can we learn from the trees? I ask my students, what can we learn from the trees? The trees have something to say. And one of the ways that I most like to characterize what modern, contemporary man, in his hubris, in his pride, in his rejection of God, in in the rejection of our very selves, we have not listened to what the trees have to say. We have not heard what the natural world is saying to us. So with that kind of, as a background, I I, encourage you, uh, you may go ahead, you may accuse me. What, what are you? Uh, a tree hugger? <laughs> um, uh, actually, I have hugged a tree before. <laughs> I guess the answer then is yes. Uh, there's a way of loving trees, rightly. I don't know if anyone's read it. Um, well, you know what my family and I were doing at uh, Sky Meadows today as we were reading Tolkien's trilogy, the, "The Lord of the Rings Out Loud Together." If you've ever I, I highly recommend it. If you've ever read J.R. R. Tolkien, he was a lover of trees. He was a lover of trees. There's so much in the trees. And, and so, frankly, if I come upon a tree hugger, I don't, I, I don't tell this person I think he's crazy. I, try to, I would rather go in there and say, as scripture would, if you find that tree beautiful, know how much more beautiful is the one who has made it for you. It's a starting point. It's a starting point. They have seen something. All right, I've divided part three into two sections. First, just some basic insights the natural world provides about life in general. Some basic insights the natural world provides about life in general, and then how familiarity with the natural world will enhance our appreciation of liturgy and the liturgical calendar. So first, some more basic insights the natural world is just can to provide us about life in general. Then I'm going to get more specific about how the familiarity with the natural world can help us in our appreciation of liturgy and the liturgical calendar, so here, ladies and gentlemen, this is a little bit shotgun style I mean honestly uh, when i I've I, I had a lot of fun and i've learned a lot preparing this lecture and i and I was kept tempted to be going in a lot of different directions. I hope it 's not too scattered for you i 'm going to here just bring together a few different things that are kind of well, how about this and how about this and, and I hope it has enough integration for you but i 'm going to'm going jump around a little bit just Here's a few insights that I think that God in his loving providence expects, hopes, intends that we see, that we learn about him, about ourselves. One, a loving providence guides all. A loving providence guides all. I go back to quotation number nine from St. Basil he, 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 in, the, in, in the bottom of the first page. The second sentence that St. Basil had said is he said, we recognize by observation, of you know, the natural world, his wisdom and power and goodness. There's a lot going on there. I, as a philosopher, when I read that, I'm aware of major modern philosophers who look at the natural world and explicitly argue from it that there is no reason in life, that clearly there's not a good God behind the natural world, for look how many things are wrong in the natural world. Now, now this is this is serious. That has to be reckoned with. We're not gonna we're not gonna go off and say, okay, what exactly will we do when somebody thinks that? I just I want to note some people look at the natural world and what what do they see? They don't see love behind it. I'm not gonna criticize those people, frankly. I think what those people need. And perhaps we're the ones called upon to do this. We need to help them, honestly, seriously, we need to help them see the love. We're not going to be able to shout it out of them, I dare say. But I don't think that they've learned to read. I don't think they're hearing what's being said. There's any number of things that can skew our ability to see what in fact is going on. We all know that. We all fall into that. Here's St. Basil is saying, look to the natural world, and if we have eyes to see, if we have ears to hear, we will see the loving, generous providence that is there. And so I I emphasize, I really think God intends, and and again, we're going to have to work to see it perhaps at times. But a loving providence is guiding all. I'd put it this way. I love this line. There is always... A, reason. a couple times, I'm, I'm going to refer to what I think a wise farmer, you could, probably, I mean, you could dro- drop out the, the adjective wise. I think really any farmer who's a real farmer is a wise farmer. I've had the blessing of knowing some in my day. It's amazing what they have seen. And I dare say to you one thing that a wise farmer knows is there's always a reason. There's always a reason. This applies in everything. You see it in the most simple things in the natural world, and we can apply it right up to the tragedies of daily life. There's always a reason. God knew that we would come to points where we would question that. And there's different places we can go to. I'm not suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the only book, that this is the only place. But it is a book, and it is a place where the answer to that concern is, I dare say, sometimes it might be the right thing for you or for someone you know, when you're really wondering, "Can can this really make sense? Is there really love behind this? Go to the natural world. It's yelling that, I dare say. Second, parts and wholes and the primacy of the common good. This point I'm going to make, make very simply, and I'd put, I, I put it this way. If we look at the natural world and we look honestly and we look deeply, we'll see the fundamental truth about life that if we are willing to accept what is perhaps the small part that we've been given then we can in fact be part of a symphony be part of something so much greater that we never could have conceived of much less done by ourselves saint thomas specifically refers to this to this point i, I love how the notion of parts and wholes. It's always about parts and whole. So, so often we think that we are the whole. But to be able to see that parts are designed to play their particular place, they've got to do their part. And when they do, there is a beauty that is absolutely astounding. Third point, again, this is just general things, basic insights, that our attentiveness, that our reading of the book of nature will help us see. Third All is gift, all is blessing. I'm going to read right now quotation number 12. This is likewise from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This was in the section on liturgy, and it really jumped out at me. Blessing is a divine and life-giving action. The word blessing is a very rich one, isn't it? Blessing is a divine and life-giving action, the source of which is the Father. His blessing is both word and gift. When applied to man, the word blessing means adoration and surrender to his creator and thanksgiving. From the beginning until the end of time, the whole of God's work is a blessing. From the liturgical poem of the first creation, Genesis, to the canticles of the heavenly Jerusalem, the inspired authors proclaim the plan of salvation as one vast divine blessing. Now that that quotation there, which was to help us to give us a sense of liturgy, of living liturgy, just really jumped out at me as that is something, sure, we can see by certain supernatural means, we can also see it naturally, that everything is a blessing. I, and in my saying it, I, I, I feel like, well, I, I, it, it might the audience accuse me of, what is this, Candyland, land, fairy land? I mean, r- really, are you looking at the same natural world I am? One might say to me, I think so. I think so. That all is a blessing. And again, here, I, I, I think particularly those who have lived closest to the natural world, something I'm going to come back to, ladies and gentlemen, in so many ways. Are we not, if we're going to be honest, we've been separated. So many customs and aspects of our culture is pulling us away from it. So many of us feel a kind of nostalgia, and then then sometimes we're like, oh, is that just nostalgia? One of my main points, ladies and gentlemen, is that we're not talking about nostalgia tonight. We're talking about something that should be the object of our intention to cultivate because it's part of our inheritance. And if it's not going on in our life, then we're missing something central. I think that God intended to give us. Fourth insight: basic insight about life from the natural world. Total dependence upon God total dependence upon God. Now I'm going to read to you quotation number 13. This is, this is a little out there. You're going to wonder why I'm giving this quotation. After I read it to you, I might wonder that myself too. But I think I'm going to be able to clear, make it clear to you why I'm giving you this as total dependence on God. Ready? From St. Thomas' Summa. The yoke of the law could not be borne without the help of grace, which the law did not confer. For it is written, it is not him that willeth, It's not him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, namely, that he wills and runs in the commandments of God, but of God that showeth mercy. Wherefore it is written, I have run the way of thy commandments, when thou didst enlarge my heart, i.e., by giving me grace and charity. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the context of this. St. Thomas is talking about salvation history, and one of the things he's reflecting upon is why is it that God let men go so long under the old law before he sent his son? And one of the things that St. Thomas argues here, beautifully, I think, is men needed to learn. They needed to learn that without supernatural grace, they were not capable of becoming themselves. More specifically here, note how St. Thomas brings this out. That, that's, the, that's the context of this. My particular interest is, no, note how he, he quotes this line, I have run the way of thy commandments when thou didst enlarge my heart. No one runs in the way of the commandments unless as a gift from God, as a gift of God's mercy. It's said that St. Therese said, God showed me his mercy first. Great sinners over here, God shows them his mercy afterwards. He happened to show me his mercy beforehand so that I didn't fall into these things. But for all of us, it's the divine mercy. Always. We can do nothing. It sounds so so obvious and simple to say this. This This is always one of the frustrating things as we're trying to grow in wisdom. When you hear a wise man say it, all of a sudden, you can tend to get the insight. He understands something when he says that line that I don't think I'm getting. So when when we hear someone who really knows say something like, we have to be totally dependent on God, they've seen something I dare say I haven't. Doesn't the natural world teach that? I go back to my wise farmer. Isn't it precise, and I'm just bringing up the wise farmer because I think this is the one who particularly has succeeded, has been in the context where he's been able to read the book that you and I are being called to read. Isn't it precisely the farmer who so clearly has that sense of everything is a gift when the wheat grows? (laughs) What in the world makes wheat grow? I mean, is, I mean, just if, if we really stop and think about these things, is, is, isn't it, it just yelling out at us, but I have designed this for you. But this, is, but this is his power, not ours. And we constantly receive it. I want to give a, give a quick example, by the way, of, of why I, I, I feel so blessed that I've done a number of pig slaughters. In my life, you're wondering why do why do I feel why do I feel blessed? I'm going to tell you why I feel blessed. I haven't had occasion to do it as as, as much as 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 some, and in many ways, I'm still a neophyte. But one of my main experiences in doing a pig slaughter is at the end, and then when I sit, whether it's the table that evening with those who have come to help me, or the or two weeks later having bacon to brunch with the family, when you're eating this food, you think to yourself. What have I done to be worthy of this? I mean, where, where do pigs come from? That by your participating in the in, in this beautiful, when done well, beautiful, even if at times difficult, and I won't go into the stories. It, it, it's an exercise in gratitude. It's a work that makes you realize it's all a gift, including the very work that you're doing to harvest it is a gift. It's all a gift. We are completely dependent upon God. All right. My second part of part three of some things specific things we learn from the natural world, I said turn to how familiarity with the natural world now will enhance our appreciation of liturgy and the liturgical calendar. One point that we might emphasize that we can learn from the natural world is regularity without monotony. Regularity without monotony. Isn't this one of the most remarkable aspects of the natural world? Think of all the different examples we might think of this. I, I love the eastern bluebird. There's this great sameness between them all. But then, every time you see one, it's like seeing something new. Each one's a little bit different than the other one. I love white oak trees. Every time you come upon this particular white oak tree, you, you, when, you, when you work on bird identifi- uh, me, tree identification, which I'm going to encourage you at the end here to do, sometimes you come up and, and when, you, when you get good enough at it, you say, I know that's a white oak tree, and if someone else is new at identification, they say, but it's not quite like the last one. You say, I know, sorry about that. I'm not sure how to, but it just, it's a white oak tree. You spend a little more time around it, you're going to know it, and it is. This funny thing, there's just those slight variations, but they're all white oak trees. Sameness with slight difference. Great regularity, never monotony. There's so many aspects of the natural, and now the rhythms. Regularity without monotony. Here is a key insight into our life and to liturgy and to liturgical cycles. Let's just look a little bit more at, at, at how we can see this showing up, not just in bluebirds and, and white oak trees. The order the order of a day. May, may I invite you? This, this is where it's, it's, it's... Could we just be children again to see for the first time some of these things? Why are there days, right? There could have been time with with no days, but God so chose, he so ordered things that there would be days. The exact, not exact, a perfect regularity, never monotony. Sunrise, high noon, sunset, nighttime, stars, sunrise, high noon, Consider the credible regularity, never monotony, of the day. Look at the ways we can match it up with our human life. A time of of peace in the morning, preparation, time for work, hard work, and a time for rest at the end. Life itself can be fit to this amazing cycle of the day. We'll come back to that in a moment. How about the year? Why are there years? Well, of course, we can point to how it's been designed astronomically, right? Consider that there are years that have this perfect regularity to them of seasons. This season, this season, this season, and then we start again. What is going on? There's so much that we could look at there of the pattern. Somehow, clearly, God is trying to teach us something. What I'd like to suggest here is that God is inviting us to see that the pattern of our own life should be like the pattern of the natural world, seen in the day, seen in the seasons. Let's take a look at the liturgical calendar here ever so briefly. The liturgical calendar fundamentally has seasons, right? The exact same notion of how that God has written necessarily into the passage of time in our world regular rhythm never monotony regular rhythm never monotony three basic kinds of spaces of time in the in the liturgical calendar just a very brief look at this we have the purple time we have the green time and we have the white time right Maybe some of you do this in Montessori with some some little children. It's a very beautiful way to do it with them. Purple time, deep cultivation, preparation. How do you match that up to seasons? A couple different ways. Winter, early spring, purple time. Then you got the green time. You got the time for growth, you got the time for regular work of maintaining and growing think here we can match that up with maybe the middle of the day we could match that up with late spring and summer then we have the white time celebration resting in the fruit it's like the evening of the day it's like the late summer in the early fall in the seasons look how the church in her generosity Which is ultimately god's generosity has the liturgical flow be one of perfect regularity never with monotony matching up to the rhythms of our very nature as fitting in with the natural world around us three takeaway points i'd like to suggest from that as regards times and the liturgical calendar and cycles one Life itself is about growing in very observable, simple ways. Life itself is about growing in very observable, simple ways. And here now our focus is particularly going to be on our spiritual life. We will not be judged on being innovative, on being flashy, on being noticed. We will be judged on how have we grown. Have we grown? like wheat in the field. God has planted the seed, all of the seeds that are our spiritual life, just as surely as He planted the seeds of every aspect of our natural life. God is the source. It's always His gift. But then, what is left to us? The cultivation. So life itself is about growing in very observable, simple ways. Two, each season has its own special work. Each season has its own special work. For many of our professions now, ladies and gentlemen, this this is not so obvious. Our professions tend to be separated from the natural world, so this is not highlighted. Most of the traditional, more naturally-oriented professions very much would bring this out. We need repeating regularity to take us back to human work again and again and again. There is no hurry, there is no rush, but there is much to do. Isn't this a profound insight for the spiritual life? What do we do if we want to grow? There's no rush, there's no hurry, but nonetheless, time is here that must be used. And there are certain set things that we need to do to cultivate according to the given seasons. So what does the church in a great wisdom do for us? She gives us each liturgical season to remind us by a whole set of visible things what we should be doing. Right? So the church here is enacting for us. It's just, it's, it's not about rushing. It's not about hurry. It's not about doing anything <coughs> extraordinary, it's about simple things that need to be done in their time. Third point, more specifically, as we started to note, there are really three basic kinds of times. So I just want to say just a little bit more about those three times, I'm going to look to wrap up. There's the fallow time, there's the growing time, and there's a the harvest time. Fallow, growing, harvest. And here I just invite you to be thinking about the liturgical seasons, and in particular I'm going to end up by making a recommendation about Lent, which is particularly a fallow time. Fallow. Here we see the basic principle from the farmers. It's always about preparing soil. The best farmers I know would, would, would always say this. What you need to do is prepare the soil. A- everything else is arranged by God for you. The seed, the growth, You have the right soil, all will go well. Just prepare that soil. It is a serious task. It is a daily task. It is a regular task. We can think here, especially in terms of the actions that the church gives us to do in Lent. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. The tradition has always emphasized, these three are ways of cultivating the soil of our own soul. Prayer, almsgiving, fasting. They are fundamentally, first of all, about how we're cultivating our own soul. So when the church says to us, it's so easy for us to think, well, the church is telling us to do almsgiving because you know. obviously, she needs our alms. The point fundamentally is we need our alms in the sense of that's how we're cultivating ourselves. right? Likewise with prayer, likewise with fasting. Fallow times are times of silence, ladies and gentlemen. It's a time for quiet and deeper preparation. This is something that is going to go on each day, and it's going to go on throughout our life, no matter what the season. But the beautiful thing about these seasons, we're given whole seasons where we specifically emphasize this. At Lent is especially a time for silence, And deep cultivation, especially through those three kinds of actions, just as the farmer in his field would be preparing deeply for what's to come, not yet even having the growing plant. Then you have the growing season. Here we can focus on the more obvious external works of building up the kingdom and of our spiritual life. We have external good works of all kinds with the various works of our vocation, in our homes, our parishes, and in our businesses. This is obviously a different kind of thing than that deep inner preparation. And there's times for a focus upon that. I leave the growing at that. Harvest times. We can focus here on learning how to celebrate well. What a great topic in itself, ladies and gentlemen. What does it take to prepare oneself to actually be able to celebrate to be able to enter in as it were to the joy of the Lord. We're by the way in the great rhythm of things we're given this we're given one day a week, Sunday every week, a day to teach us how to rest. But rest in the sense of celebrate but then there's, there's whole seasons, such as the Christmas season, especially, and the Easter season, where, it is to, where we cultivate a deep cultivation of how to actually rest in the harvest of the works that have been done by God and the works that have been done by us. Again, all three of these kinds of actions, ladies and gentlemen, will go on various ways every day, every season, but then we have certain seasons where we particularly are focusing on them because they're so important that we grow in excellence in them. Before I give my quick final practical uh, suggestions to end up, I would just like to refer to the notion of first fruits, ladies and gentlemen, with the quotations in number 14. This is just a a little bit of a quick add in here because I couldn't pass it up. It would seem to me such a beautiful notion of something that if anyone who has grown things in the garden, anyone who grow blueberries out there, to me the most obvious example of first fruits in the natural world are growing blueberries. In my family, when you go out, my father is now passed on. I'm still tending the blueberry plants that he planted for us. You go out there and the the first blueberries are always the biggest. They're always the juiciest. They're always the sweetest. And the funny thing is there's something deep within kind of all the children. There's this sense of who will get to eat those? If anyone goes out to the garden and plucks one of those, one of those, one of those first big ones, there'll be kind of the sense of, who are you to eat that? I mean, because, well, is, is it any more for me? Well, beautifully, this is captured in the great tradition, going back to the Hebrews, of you take the first fruits, because they are better, right? You have to be a gardener to see that. The first fruits are always the best, and those are always set aside for God. I'm at quotation number 14. He brought us out, therefore, I have now brought you the first fruits of the soil which you, O Lord, have given me. Deuteronomy the Numbers. The Levites, therefore, are mine because every firstborn is mine. Apocalypse, Revelation. They are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were purchased from among men, first fruits unto God and the Lamb. I told you I'd circle back to this. I just want to mention very quickly. The religious life can be called, or religious can be called the first fruits. Those who are willing to say yes to God in the consecrated life are like the first fruits. Isn't this, isn't this a beautiful aspect that you can learn from the natural world? God in his wisdom makes the first fruits be the most special, the ones that you want to set aside. Those called religious life are like the first fruits. We offer them to God, and they, in a sense, represent all the rest of us as the offering. They themselves are the ones whose lives are most of all, as we noted earlier, that living liturgy of being completely for God. What I'd like to do now is just, I'm gonna just toss out a couple of ideas of, in view of this kind of smorgasbord, and I've kind of gone here and there for you, ladies and gentlemen, in view of this smorgasbord of the importance of our reading that book of the natural world, what are a couple quick suggestions that I would have in view of these things? And again, you feel free to ask questions about it if you want to afterwards. We need to look at our life, I suggest, and ask ourselves this. What things should we cut out? What things should we prune? And what things should we plant that are not yet growing in our life? In view of these things we've been talking about, what should we cut out, what should we prune back, what should we plant? Certain things perhaps we need to remove. I've given a separate lecture for the ICC, ladies and gentlemen, on technology and certain challenges of technology. Technology is a tool. Technology can be used well. At the same time, I suggest there are certain technologies that we need to be especially aware of for the negative influences they can have on us. Why am I mentioning that right now, ladies and gentlemen? Because I'm convinced of this that our uses of modern technologies are one of the main reasons that we have been separated from the book of nature what do i this is a problem Uh, we can't just shed them but what are we going to do the first step is always to understand the problem when you go for a walk outside if you have something that's going to be buzzing and ringing and so forth are we really having contact with the natural world. I, I give you this challenge, ladies and gentlemen. Our ancestors walked, they moved through this beautiful world and they were present to it, they smelt it, they felt it, they lived in it, they participated in it in a way that our various technologies are taking away from us. And nobody can do anything about that for you but you. And so all I'm suggesting right here is Things as simple as this. You make your own decisions. Is it that you're gonna set aside your technology when you go for a walk and realize no one needs to get in touch with you in this next stretch of time. I'm actually gonna enter in, I'm I'm gonna experience this. Here's another quickie as regards technology. The Positive thing I'm gonna suggest that you here in a second is is have your own garden. Everybody, most everybody has your own little lawn, is your own little corner of the world. I make a big deal of this. If we've been separated from be entering into God's providence for us in the natural world in these other areas of our life, and we're not living close to the land as so many of our ancestors did, what can we do? Can we have our own little plot be a way that we do that? I suggest that there's ways that we should do that versus not do it. Are we using chemicals that are just not allowing us to actually experience the natural rhythms? Are we using tools that are loud and unnecessarily taking us away from it? What can we do? How can we set that up to be able to do it in a more positive way? So I'm, there's a couple of negative aspects there of what are we gonna set aside? And so just a quick list of what we might wanna do. Walking. Going for those walks outside and really entering in. Appreciating through study. Remember what St. Augustine said? Notice. Study. Take up bird watching. I am 100% serious here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm convinced, especially for young people. Take up bird watching. Take up tree identification. You fall in love. And you're falling in love with the very things that God wants to speak to us through. Take, observe the night sky. Learn about the night sky. May I make a recommendation? Don't use the app that when you hold it up, it tells you what everything is. I'm not making a joke. I'm completely serious. Learn the various bodies in the sky. It will transform how we live at night. Working the land in some way, every one of us in some way can enter into growing seeds. It's always about seeds. It's always about cultivating, and it's about the harvest. I already made a suggestion to you earlier, ladies and gentlemen, about Lent. May I particularly say, let's take a new approach to Lent. Let's see it as that fallow time. Let's see it as that time when you're not doing anything with the plant yet. We're cultivating the soil. Let's think of this Lent as when the farmer is cultivating the soil so that things will grow well. This is the preparation for then growth will be dramatic and the fruits will be dramatic. I conclude, ladies and gentlemen, there is indeed a reason for the many labors that God calls upon us to do in our life. Ultimately, our labors are about the harvest. God always has his eyes on the harvest. I want to just read you This quotation from St. Gregory, it's quotation number 15. The man throws the seed when he conceives in the heart a good intention. The seed sprouts and grows, but he's not aware of that, because until it's time to harvest, the good deeds continue to grow. The earth bears fruit by itself, because through pervenient grace, the human mind naturally goes towards the fruit of good deeds. The earth does it in stages, grass, ear, wheat, To produce grass means to have the weakness of the beginning of good. The grass does the ear when virtue progresses into good. Wheat fills the ear when virtue reaches the strength and the perfection of the good deed. Here's my favorite line, when the fruit is ripe, comes the sickle, because it's time to harvest. In fact, God Almighty, when the fruit is ripe, sends the sickle and reaps the harvest. Because when he has led each of us to the perfection of the work, he truncates our temporal life to take his grain in the granaries of heaven. It's a new view of death, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? That was very consoling to me. What is death when we look at it as Christians but the harvest? It has been about nothing but growth. My father is a farmer. He is about a particular harvest, that harvest which one day, the fruit of which will be that we are a living liturgy in heaven where there is a perfect regularity, never monotony. It's not about growth anymore. It's the perfect regularity of celebration. Thanks a lot for your attention. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Kutterback. When uh, I came up with the idea for tonight's topic, I couldn't think of a better person to give this talk. And uh, it's always nice to find out that I was was right. Who has a question?
2: I can understand your remark that we can find the reason for everything that happens, including tragedies, personal tragedies. I can understand that when I contributed or caused them. But how do you understand the, the reason for natural calamities like earthquakes in Japan that knock out a nuclear plant? Well, <clears throat> um, the, the question is a good one, a, a great one. I, I think that it's the issue is not so much finding the reason as knowing that there is one and and so when i say contact with the natural world cultivates in us the confidence that there is a reason it's it's in part because i think often we do recognize in life and the farmer's kind of archetype of this but it, all of us should be able to see this in our experience i think if we have eyes to see one of the big ways it happens is that later on it is often i think we get the gift of realizing oh my goodness you know this that seems so horrible at the time you know that 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 she said that she didn't love me you know at that time which was which was so life shattering ends up being a, a, a key part I mean, I've had wise people say to me a couple times in my life, you won't see the reason for this now, you, per- you will. It might be one day, it might be a month, it might be a year, it might not be until the final judgment. And so I, I, don't, I don't take it upon myself to be able to explain why in God's providence certain particularly horrible things happen. Um, I, I don't know, but I nonetheless have, have confidence that there is a reason. And I think that's something that God is constantly teaching us. And it's a, this, is, this, is, I mean, so this is a great question because it's, it's at the center of, of faith. Are, are we able? Are we willing to trust? And I'm going I'm to say this to you. Sometimes I say this to myself. It seems that there are, maybe I'm being unfair, but I, I do this to encourage myself. It seems sometimes there's so few people that are willing to give God the benefit of the doubt. I, I'm going to try to say, you know, Lord, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you, even when it's really hard to do so, because it, you have earned that. And I think, and I think there's many, many ways that he shows that, and one of them is in the natural world. But I, I, I don't think we should hold ourselves as though we should be able to say what the reason is. Sometimes, at least.
1: We have one coming in from online. Carrie from Roanoke asks, well, she starts by saying, my family likes to garden and looks forward to it each spring. However, the experience is ruined by all the noise outside, leaf blowers, lawn mowers, et cetera. Do you have any advice how we can cope with that?
2: <laughs> e- EARPLUGS CAN COVER A MULTITUDE OF EVILS. Um, um, h- h- how to cope with that, Ho- hopefully with a smile, and realize there's a reason for everything, <laughs> even when you don't see what that re- reason is. And, and we, we have to suffer, we have to suffer. try our best to suffer these things gladly, or I was going to say suffer fools gladly, but it, just as often where the fool of somebody else is. Um, we, seek, seeking silence is, uh, is an effort. Sometimes it's hard, hard to find it. But um, it's, it, 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 it's there to be found and I think that hopefully that the, the, the great fruits of that time that you spend outside, even if it's not what it could have been, will still be worthwhile. Dr. Kutterback, speaking of cultivating the soil and thinking also of the parable of the soil, the different soils, Yeah. can you give us some practical insight for us technology-attached <laughs> persons? How do you do that and what is that, both in terms of as a farmer and as just a, a spiritual matter. Well, okay, now, I, I can feel a really good question in there, but I'm not exactly sure what it was. When you say, how can you do that? Was it cult- how to cultivate the soil or how to associate that parable to our spiritual life? Both. Oh. <laughs> good, any other little thing? Um, all right, <laughs> that was good. All right, two quick thoughts. How to cultivate soil. Um, on your knees humbly. One of the great one of the great things honestly about soil, no matter what kind of soil you have, you begin where you are. I I, I one thing I had wanted to include, I I, I gotta say this. Isn't it, isn't it just I mean the, the divine sense of humor that what comes out of the back end of animals <laughs> is the best nourishment. I mean I mean really, when you talk about, there's a, if, if that doesn't show us that there's a reason for everything. <laughs> Honestly, so, so I, I love, I mean, the, the, the beautiful ways that you can cultivate soil by you just you, if you can find manure. If you can't find manure, anything green and brown. remember the green and brown principle. Grass clippings, leaves, green, that's nitrogen. Brown, that's carbon. Wood chips, uh, dry leaves that are brown you put them together basically in two to one. Two to one, the brown to the green. Two brown, one green. You put that together, you have compost. It takes a little time. It always takes patience. It's always about patience. God is obviously trying to tell us something. And I think sometimes we're always in a rush with our technologies. Well, if I buy this machine, I'll be able to do this more quickly. What's the rush? always. Sometimes it's about doing the work and, and getting our fingers in the soil or, or cultivating that, that soil with, with a tool. So I would say you, you always begin where, where you are with the soil and, and, and add things that God himself has provided that's going to increase it. And, and, so, and so likewise, wherever we are in the spiritual life, God is providing things for us that will take us from where we are to the next step. There are different so this is the different soil types, there's also just different soul types out there. And so we need to look at that parable and ask ourselves, do we have the hard soil? What do we have to do to loosen that soil up? But there's so many great analogies, but honestly, think think about that. What is or does our soil have too many weeds in it? What are the weeds in our lives? And what what a great question. I mean just to think about weeds and the effect it has on plants, and to say we all have weeds in our lives. What are those weeds? What do you do about weeds? You can clip off the top. You can pull them out by the root. Which one are we doing? So, so we just, it's, you do not have to be Mr. Farmer Boy to do this. You really don't. Even you, Mr. Technoman. You're going to do great. Thanks for that question.
0: If heaven has a liturgy, which you said it does, can that mean we will be able to celebrate a kind of mass in heaven, as well as receive this, uh, the Eucharist?
2: Well, um, um, a, a theologian will give you a fuller answer to that question. I'm just going to say this quickly. My understanding the heavenly liturgy is itself, I mean, th- there is an essential continuity between the Mass and the heavenly liturgy because the Mass is Christ offering Himself to the Father and inviting us to join Him. My understanding, I'll stand under theological correction, is that will proceed essentially into heaven, although it's not gonna be in the same form as our Mass is now. I'll stand under correction. I don't think there's there's going to be communion anymore, for that has to do with the way things are now. We will be seeing Him as he is. And so that itself will be the full personal union. There'll be no more need for Holy Communion. Professor Garland, does that sound all right to you?
1: As a theologian,
2: I concur. Good, thank you. <laughs> in the context of what you just talked about, what do you make of Adam and Eve being created in a lush garden and our Lord basically coming into this world in a barren desert? That's not where I thought you were going to go with that question. <laughs> you always got to work me hard, okay. I'm like, oh, ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, so I was oh, this is great. Let's talk about them coming into, the earth. I, can, can, of course, what, what professors have a terrible habit of asking what they want, answering what they wanted you to ask anyway. So if, let, let, let me say this real quick. Um, I mean, should we not always keep going back to God created a garden. This means something. He wants us to live in, in, in a garden. There's, there, there's, there's such richness. Ultimately, I don't want to make it overly physical. Right? There's important spiritual aspects of it, but that, that we are cultivators, that we are sowers of seed, that we are, that we are growers. So, um, so how it, key in Pope John Paul II is so strong on this, to see our human identity is, is in so many ways represented again by various images of us in a garden. Okay, now, so Adam and Eve being created there. Now, of course, then, I mean, there's so many things of gardens, and again, Professor Garland could speak more about that, and then you have the garden of, of, of Gethsemane, right, where then he's, he's saving us in a garden just as we were lost in a garden. But coming, but, but being born in, in something of, I don't think he actually was, you said born, I don't, I mean, I don't think Bethlehem's a desert honestly i mean the holy land is actually i mean there's some desert areas there but the holy land is actually you know fertile and so i i don't think it's quite I mean, now, I mean, he was born in wintertime, why? And of course, it's, it's always good to ask questions like that. And, and, and of course, he's born where then the sun is gonna be growing, right? John the Baptist is born in the summer when the sun is then gonna be getting smaller, right? These things are all relevant. The fathers point to these type of things. These are the type of things we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of the different solstices and the meaning of that. So you've asked us a great question. I probably could have, should have said more, but I, I can't.
1: Thank you, Dr. Oh. Cuddeback.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Pray for us.